This week on Myths and Legends, it's a tale of a knight from the High Middle Ages as he treks across the world, seeking redemption and vengeance against those who have wronged him. We'll learn that unicorns are not always rainbows and happiness, and that you should never talk to a bird. Nothing good ever comes from talking to a bird. The creature this week will invite you to a dance party, but unfortunately, you're the only one invited and it will eat you afterwards. This is Myths and Legends, episode 174. Take your time. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is a medieval knightly tale, slash crusader epic, slash romance, slash story of a saint. People can't really pin down what it is, but we'll talk about that later. It does have knights, battles, talking birds, and unhelpful unicorns, though. It's set in Europe in the 10th or 11th century, so high Middle Ages, and we'll just jump right in with our main character, Sir Isumbrus. Sir Isumbrus was having an awesome day. Heck, Sir Isumbrus was having an awesome life. I mean, he was a tall, strong, and very handsome knight, as the story says. He was loaded with gold, robes, and large tracts of land. The minstrels would sing in his hall every night, and his table was always full. His lady was as fair as the fairest, and he had three sons, and they were delightful. Things were amazing. So naturally, God was extremely upset with him. You see, because Sir Asumbrus was living in a medieval earthly paradise, he didn't give much thought to the paradise of the next world. Sure, he fed anyone who came to his table, rich or poor, and gave to the needy, and was just a nice guy, but he gave no thought to Christ in all of this. So, God sent him a talking bird. Squawk, squawk. Welcome, Sir Asumbrus, the knight heard when he was out hunting in the most secluded part of the forest. Sir Asumbrus slowed his horse. Uh, hi, talking bird? How can I help you? And I have to give the talking bird credit. He cut right to it. Through pride at your extensive income and your great wealth, you have lost sight of who you really are. The king of heaven greets you and asks you now to make a choice. Would you rather be penniless and destitute in your youth or in your old age? Choose one or the other. Sir Sumbers gasped, fell to his knees, and held his hands up to heaven. He knew he had been forgetting something for the last 30-odd years. He yelled that he gave his soul to Jesus Christ. The bird laughed. <laughs> A little too late on that one, bud. Now he had to go through all these trials. It was this whole thing. Sir Sumber stood. Oh, like, like Catherine from last week? The bird sighed. It wasn't like Catherine. It was similar to Catherine. The basic premise was the same, but Sir Sumber's story was vastly different, so no one should expect it to be the same. Also like the slave mother, Sir Sumber said interrupting the bird that was delivering his punishment. The bird shook his head. He wasn't familiar with that one. Sir Asumbra said that it was basically the same as the Catherine story. A mother made a deal with a bird and she was kidnapped by pirates. Solid story. Well, this is a different thing, the bird said. A whole big adventure and honestly, the knight here didn't just get to run out the clock. He had to prove himself. Or he might just be penniless and destitute in old age and youth. 
Sir Sumbrus held up his hands. Okay, all right. He didn't mean to make the bird mad. He'd make the same choice as Catherine. And then he broke into a poem. In youth I may ride and go. In eld I may not do so. My limbs will wax unwieldy. Lord, if thy will be. In youth send me poverty. And wealth in mine eldy. The bird blinked. Cool. You done? So you chose a hardship and poverty-stricken youth and wealth in your eldy? Sir Asimbra said that this was all originally a poem in the Middle Ages, so he thought he'd give the bird a taste of his lyrical ability, too. The bird nodded. Cool. Masterful. All right. Well, that's all the bird needed to hear. This wasn't a thing like Catherine, where the bird was going to chase after him and hassle him. God could do that remotely. Later. The knight watched the bird fly off. Huh. Well, that was weird. He wondered when the misfortune would start. He didn't even get to finish that thought before his horse, an eight-year-old gelding in the prime of his life, dropped dead underneath him. His hounds and hawks, the ones that he had taken hunting, all looked at the dead horse. Whether spurred on by some spiritual force or simply not wanting to be next, they bolted, leaving Sir Asumbrus alone in the forest. It was several hours before he was able to find his way out. His ride fell out from under him, and now he'd have to send a servant out into the forest to get his saddle. He hoped that this misfortune was it, because this was the worst day ever. The boy that met him at the edge of the forest confirmed that this was, in fact, the worst day ever, but not for the reason Asumbrus thought. Hey, child, whatever your name is, go into the dark forest and get my saddle. I lost it. Somewhere. It's on my dead horse, so if you pass a dead horse with my saddle on it, you've probably gone too far. Also, why are you smoking? And not in the anachronistic way that's bad for your health, but in the literal way that's also actually probably worse for your health. Have you been on fire? The boy nodded and told his master. Most of Sir Sumbrus's servants were killed when all of his buildings caught fire at the same time. The only survivors were the boy and Sir Asumbrus's wife and children. Sir Asumbrus exhaled. All right, here we go. This was his punishment for being pretty decent, but forgetting to give God the glory. All right, how should he react? He snapped his fingers. Praise God, happiest day of his life. The house being burned and all of his servants dead if his family lived? Awesome. The boy thought about it. That, I mean, was that healthy though? It was okay to feel sad. Oh, no, he was marching toward home. On the way home, Sir Asumbrus got more bad news. While the structures burned, thieves had let all of his livestock away. Sir Asumbrus smiled a definitely not forced smile. Awesome! The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. As he always said, starting now, the Lord caused men to be rich and poor at his will. All this was fine. We're great. When he arrived at his house, he saw his wife and three children standing there naked in the smoking ruins of their estate. The fire had done its job, taking absolutely everything, down to the clothes they were wearing. Sir Asumbrus took his own luxurious cloak off and draped it over his wife and tore his outer shirt, giving it to his three children to wrap around themselves. He urged them not to be too upset. All the sorrow they found themselves in was you know, caused by the sins they had committed, he said, really more paraphrasing the bird and spreading the blame around to his wife and children. He told them they deserved as much and more. I imagine Lady Asembrus might have said something to the effect of, Really? 
The children deserved to watch the servants who had cared for them for their entire lives burn to death before their very eyes. But she didn't get the chance, because they were leaving. Sir Asumbra said that, with the animals and house gone, he could no longer afford to keep all of his servants, or pay them what he currently owed them. It was probably best if they left immediately. Lady Asumbra asked the obvious question, where were they going to go? This was the knight's ancestral home. I mean, like, none of them had been 10 miles away their entire lives. <laughs> Sir Asumbrus laughed in her face. The answer was as obvious as the question. They would follow God and go to the place where he lived and died for them, where he shed his blood on the cross. The lady's eyes almost popped out of her head. Uh, Jerusalem? He knew there were, like, so many wars going on right now, right? They were called the Crusades. He wanted to take his children into an active war zone? Not missing a beat, Sir Asumbrus nodded. Mm-hmm. And they would leave today. They would take nothing with them, for Christ in his mercy will provide food for them if they begged while they traveled. And God told you this? Or are we just jumping in and assuming that this is what he wants us to do? Lady Asumbrus asked. But Sir Asumbrus wasn't listening. To show how serious he was about God, he had picked up the remains of a knife from the charred husk of his house and was currently carving Jesus on the cross into his shoulder. Guys, I'm like really Christian now, Sir Asumbra said, like majorly overcompensating in a self-destructive way. Don't anybody do this, please. Asumbra announced his grand intention of going vaguely east to vaguely follow God. They left their village mourning them, and their employees hoping the checks were in the mail. I mean, they were going to get paid, right? God made Sir Asumbrus and his family work for it, though they begged in the clothes Asumbrus had given them on the day of the fire, so barely any clothing at all. They didn't meet with kindness on the road. Eventually, they came to a ford, and Sir Asumbrus stripped down. He was the only one who could swim, so it was time for Water Taxi Dad to save the day yet again. He told his youngest son to stay put with his wife and middle child. The eldest son climbed on his father's back, and they made their way across the river. On Sir Summers' return trip, the trouble really started. And yeah, losing everything to a fire and bandits and spending six days starving on the road apparently isn't bad enough. Because when Sir Summers was halfway across, he heard a, uh, dad? From where he left his eldest son. He looked back and saw the lion. The lion, who was approaching his eldest son, was then inexplicably overshadowed by the leopard on the other side of the river with his wife and other two sons. Isumbrus was frozen, not knowing who to help. But that decision was made for him when each of the apex predators carried off a son, leaving only his wife and youngest son back on the original bank. Still hearing their screams in the distance, Sir Isumbrus ordered his wife and his youngest on his back. And no, he couldn't go after the sons. This was all God's will and it was all okay. They got to the other side of the river and continued on. I'm not going to sell you my wife, Sir Asumbrus shouted at the sultan. Lady Asumbrus clung close to her husband. It was a very low bar, not to be sold, but given the month they'd had, she was glad for his decision. After the river, they traveled for another three days, 
until they arrived at the Aegean Sea. There, they found ships massing for battle, and though Asambrus would have liked to avoid the Sultan and his army that, according to the story, wanted to make war on Christendom, they were beyond starving at this point. They were immediately stopped and captured, and the only thing that didn't get them killed or immediately put into slavery was, well, even after a few weeks wandering the roads without food, Sir Asambrus and his lady, well, they still had it going on. He was tall and broad and she was beautiful. They were immediately brought before the sultan. The sultan looked at the knight. Well, this guy, this guy could do some damage. He asked if the knight had ever, you know, thought about renouncing Christianity and converting to Islam for cash and prizes. Now, after all that his late apostasy had gotten him, Sir Sumbers thought that it might be a bad idea to go ahead and renounce Christianity. The sultan understood, but he did have a follow-up offer and that's how we get to him trying to buy Lady Assembrus. Unfortunately, Sir Assembrus was not in a strong negotiating position, and even though he refused the gold and the clothes the sultan offered, the sultan simply nodded and continued counting out the gold. He wrapped the gold in red cloth, handed it to Sir Assembrus, and then nodded to his men, who, quite literally, kicked him and the boy off the ship and into the sea. Lady Assembrus had been taken. Sir Assembrus found his son and took him to shore. The gold spilled out on the beach, and Asembrus laid there panting. This was fine, all good. Uh, his wife was now a slave to a king. It's still all God's will. Lady Asembrus found him the next day. She was allowed, by her new husband, the sultan, to go to Sir Asembrus and give him some food for the road. Sir Asembrus saw the guards that accompanied his wife as they placed the pack on the ground. It had enough food for a week on the road. The knight looked up at the sultan, looming on the ship above him. His wife embraced him. When she did, she breathlessly told him to come to the land where she was taken. There, they would kill the sultan, and all the men would bow before him. His misfortunes would be over. She pressed a ring into his hand, out of the sight of the guards, and then stepped away. She said it would fit perfectly in her own. The time when Sir Asembrus watched the sultan's colorful sails flutter in the wind as his wife left the bay now the wife of a foreign monarch, was the first time he allowed himself to cry. After some time had passed, Asembrus and his son forced themselves to eat, and they put the bread in the money bag, this was a bad idea not just from a sanitation standpoint, but because, a day later in the forest, an eagle came through and stole their food, money, and extra clothes, because it was all in one thing. <sighs> Sir Assembra sighed. God's will. It was all God's will. Oh, hey there, Mr. Unicorn. Both Assembra and his son had looked up, and what did they see coming out of the woods? A brilliantly white unicorn with a flowing mane. Now, we have pictures of unicorns being like sweet rainbow horses that are the image of benevolent purity. Works from the Middle Ages don't always support that interpretation of the creature. Case in point, as Sir Asembrus approached the unicorn with a flat palm, the creature lowered its head, charged past Asembrus, and skewered the night's sun before lifting the boy off his feet and galloping off into the forest. Sir Asembrus stood there stunned. His home burned, 
his servants killed. His wife sold into slavery for a sum that was stolen from him by an eagle. Two sons killed by wild animals, and the third skewered by a unicorn. He was now starving, penniless, and alone. Finally, Sir Asumbrus broke down. We'll see what Sir Asumbrus does on his urgent quest to rescue his wife, now that he's completely alone, but that will be right after this. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Sir Asumbrus worked at the forge, hammering the iron out. If you're wondering where Sir Asumbrus got iron or a forge, well, a lot of stuff has happened in the past seven years. It began with him wandering into a village, broke, broken, and starving. He begged for a job, and the people gave him one, then another, and another. As a train knight, he towered over the normal people in the village, and even starving, he was the strongest by far. It wasn't long before he found his place as a blacksmith's apprentice. And then, after a few years of training, he had a shop of his own. Okay, so it's nice that he settled down and took up a hobby, but really? I mean, really? It was so urgent that he follow God and make his way east that he let his wife and children starve on the road, exposing them to all sorts of danger up to and including having his sons get carried off by wild animals and his wife getting captured and sold into slavery. Then, once he's alone, he abandons all urgency on his quest and settles down in the first village he sees. This story has a very medieval value set. I mean, it was written during the Middle Ages. What are you going to do? Hanging out on your estate? Giving food and wine to anyone who needs it? Not really giving much thought to God, but generally not harming anyone? Enjoy getting jobed and painfully losing everyone you care about? Spending seven years learning how to forge weapons and armor to go fight in a bloody holy war? Well. That's how you redeem yourself. Now, if you're not familiar with the Crusades, first, lucky you. An extremely simplified summary is that it was a series of military conflicts between people fighting on behalf of the Catholic Church against people of Islamic and Jewish faith for the Holy Land. It is a dark and messed up chapter in world history. And I'm not sure how much Sir Asumbrus initially bought into the actual crusade and how much it was just that his particular revenge goals dovetailed nicely with the Catholic side of the crusade as they were fighting against the sultan that kidnapped his wife. Regardless, the story says that when Sir Asumbrus learned that the sultan who took his wife was rampaging around Christendom, as the story says, he took his new conveniently applicable skills and forged a suit of armor, a shield, and weapons. 
he then took a horse that they used to transport coal and galloped his way to the Holy Land. After seven years, he was back. The story says that our great and noble knight prayed to Jesus. And remember, the story had an issue with him doing unto others as he would like them to do unto him, by feeding and clothing and helping out the needy of his village. But the story was all about him praying to God, and then doing quite the opposite of that, by, quote, inflicting many horrific wounds upon his enemies, the chief of which being the sultan himself. Yeah, they didn't save it for the end of this legend. As soon as he caught sight of the man who had tossed the bag of gold in his arms before kicking him off a ship, there was nothing that could stand in the way of Surasumbras. He chased the sultan up a mountain, his razor-sharp sword removing any obstacle, and the last look in the sultan's eyes was one of faint recognition as Surasumbras watched the life fade from them. Cutting deep behind enemy lines to kill their leader presents certain other problems. Namely, congrats! You're now surrounded by the enemy. The Catholic king won the day and found Surasumbras buried among the dead. Alive, but just barely. Surasumbras woke up in a convent, surrounded by nuns who were weeping over his wounds, which is exactly the reaction you want from your medical professionals, seeing your wounds for the first time. Day by day, the nuns applied the salve to his wounds, and day by day he drank his medicines. Soon, he could sit up, then rise to his feet, then support himself with a stick. One morning, the nuns found a cloak, walking stick, and pilgrim's bag gone from the storehouses. Sir Asumbris had left. It was time to continue his journey. He walked his way south, until he was once again at the Aegean Sea. There, he used the money that he had earned as a blacksmith to buy passage on a ship headed to the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Sir Asumbris rose from the streets of Akko in modern-day Israel, filthy and destitute. I'm not sure why today was the day he was going to head east, to Jerusalem, and finally see his quest through, but after, no joke, another seven years begging on the streets of the coastal city of Akko, the last real Christian stronghold in the region, he decided that, yeah, why not wrap things up? Not like my wife is a slave or anything, and it's now been a full decade and a half since I've seen her, and there's been nothing stopping me from walking east this entire time. Nope, nothing like that. Regardless, Sir Asumbras decided that the time was finally right to do anything at all, and he began walking to Jerusalem. And there, at a spring outside of the city, the first night he arrived, an angel of God, shining and beautiful, met him, holding bread and wine, saying that finally, after losing it all, seven years as a blacksmith, some holy warring, and then seven more years of sleeping on the street, Sir Asumbras' sins were forgiven. Rest easy. His suffering was over. And yeah, all he had to do was walk about 100 miles at some point over seven years. It's like if a football team is on the one-yard line and then waits there for seven years. The opposing team has gone home, gone on with their lives, but still they wait for some reason until they just walk it across the goal line. That's how Sura Sumbrus' epic quest for redemption ended. Freed of this 
vague inconvenience of needing to redeem himself for his past actions, Surasimbris ate the bread and wine that the angel offered him, while being told that the king of heaven urges Surasimbris to go out once more into the world. Surasimbris, wisely deciding not to say that that's where he had been for the past 20 years, thanked the angel, and the being left him. Unfortunately for Surasimbris, he might have gotten his redemption, but he didn't get his family estate, servants, and all that money back. He might be free, but he was still a beggar. So, once again, he walked. He walked because, among the beggars, there was a rumor of a city out east, where the queen would come to the city gates and just give people gold and jewels. Surasimbris thought that it might just be a myth, but actual money for an actual meal was too good to pass up. So, he made the trek east. On his way, he learned about the altruistic queen. She was apparently a foreigner in this land, and her husband, a sultan, had died in battle nearly a decade ago. Through her kindness and sheer force of will, she managed to stay in power after the death of the sultan. Sir Summers thought about it. Huh, what a compelling person that sounded in no way related to one he previously knew. Because of her reputation, she walked among the people, handing out gold and if people wanted them, jobs, to earn even more. Her eyes fell on Surasimbris, and before long, he was working in the castle courtyard. Now that Surasimbris was, you know, eating, he began to put on weight. All that tragedy and stress had turned his hair gray and wrinkled his skin. So while the queen thought the guy looked a little familiar, he was just some old man that they had helped by taking him in. Did she think that he looked vaguely familiar and attractive? Absolutely. Did she kind of like the way he was way too intense when he jumped into the night practice sessions against the same people that had brought her here? Absolutely. Did she think that he might actually be her husband, Sir Asambrus? No, I guess not. I mean, after the first decade, she thought that he had died on the road or something, because there's no way, with her in captivity, a knight would simply learn a trade for seven years, and then just kind of lounge around on the street a few hundred miles away for another seven years. No, that would be ridiculous. She didn't suspect that Surasimbris might be her husband until she saw the gold. After his visit with the angel in Jerusalem, Surasimbris' luck had changed. I mean, after you have a kid get carried off by a vicious unicorn, there's really nowhere to go but up, but whatever. One morning, hunting in the forest, he noticed something in a nest in a tree. He gasped, climbed, and saw that it was the pack that had been carried off on the day his youngest son died the beautiful robe that contained his bread, and more importantly now, all the gold he had received as payment for his wife. He took it back, but he couldn't bear to spend it or really even look at it. It made him miserable, reminding him of the past. The story says that he would just walk around weeping loudly, but wouldn't tell anyone what was wrong. There's snooping. There's snooping to help a friend. And then there's waiting until Surasumbras was on one of his long, loud crying walks one day to break down his door and see why he was sad. The queen took one look and went to make preparations. That night, she found the knight and sat him down. Where did he get the gold she found in his room? He explained the whole story, and I guess she wasn't mad about the two seven-year-long gaps. The death of the youngest, while sad, was not something that she wasn't living with for the past 15 years, when Asumbrus failed to come to her aid. Finally, she asked if, on the day he parted from his wife, his wife had given him anything. 
he held up half of a ring. You mean this? The queen had an announcement. There was a new king. The people cheered. It was truly a joyous day. King Asumbra stood up in front of his people. He wanted to be a just, kind, and benevolent ruler. The people cheered again. The queen stepped back from the podium. All right, this went really well. She was a little worried that this might not go over. What with a foreign queen bringing her once and future husband to be their king? But nope, all the people were cool with it. The end. And one more thing, King Asembrus yelled out to the assembled crowd as they were dispersing, completely in love with him and his wife and excited for their lifelong rule. King Asembrus said that they were predominantly Muslim, right? The people nodded, yeah, but they accepted his differences and allowed him to be the king, so it was all good. King Asembrus said that that would all change. From this day forward, he would be forcing all of them to be baptized and convert under penalty of imprisonment or death. All right, good talk, everybody. King Asembrus stepped away from the platform and away from the stunned faces of not only his wife, but the entire city. The king and queen's lifelong rule would be much shorter. Things quickly disintegrated after this. The forced conversion was a 100% non-starter with the city. There were revolts and riots from within, and talk of an invasion from without. It wasn't long before the people of the city allied with two other kings in the area. And Queen and King Asumbrus were facing an army 30,000 strong. The king's guard quickly defected, and as King Asumbrus looked out on the battlefield, as he dressed for a battle where he would be the only one fighting, he felt a tap on his shoulder. It was his wife. She said that he kind of threw everything she built away with a sentence, but she didn't want to leave him again. Also, they would probably burn her alive by association after his little edict, so she was in this whether she wanted to be or not. He bowed low, saying that if he was going to survive this day, it would only be by God's will, because he would be fighting alone. She put her hand under his chin, and made him rise to his feet. Nope, he wouldn't be fighting alone. If they were going to die, they were going to die side by side. Bring out the armor that would fit her. Minutes later, the two looked out on the host, nearly 30,000 strong, and filling the horizon in front of them. They took a deep breath, and charged. As they rode, Sir Asembrus and his wife, side by side, lances out, they noticed a third kicking up dirt on their right. They turned to look, and it was another knight. Someone riding when all had abandoned them. But he was unlike any they had ever seen, because he was riding the lion. Then, on their left, another knight joined them, riding the leopard. Finally, when they saw the knight on the unicorn, they knew what was happening. God had returned their sons to them. The five met the 30,000, and the slaughter ensued. When the fog of war cleared, the family of five stood among 23,000 corpses, the rival sultans dead among them. 10,000 were in retreat, and unsurprisingly, no one in the region would stand against five people who had killed roughly 4,000 people apiece on a single day while riding lions and unicorns. 
it was like the Chronicles of Narnia out there, but, you know, with way more problematic religious and racial overtones. And so, as part of our very medieval happy ending, it said that Sir Sumbrus took over the three kingdoms and gave each to a son that had been restored to him. Then, in a practice that has not aged well, but will be seen as very positive and good back then, they forced all the conquer people in their kingdoms to convert to their religion. And, because no help was coming from without, the people did. The story ends by saying explicitly that when Sir Asembrus and his family died, all their souls went to heaven. You know, in case you were worried that the knight who literally massacred thousands for the sole reason that they didn't want to convert to his religion might not get his eternal rewards. The story is from a nearly 800-line poem from the 15th century, though many experts believe the story was circulated before 1320, which would make his crusade story pretty topical. I don't know if there was an historical Sir Asembrus, probably not, but one of the reasons this story is pretty interesting, I mean, aside from talking birds and murderous unicorns, is because it's hard to pin down exactly what it is. Is it a romance? A crusader tale? Is it a hagiography? An inordinate amount of ink has been spilled on the subject. And if you'd like to get into it, I put some links in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show and get cool stuff, there's a membership thing on the site. For way less than the price of 82 pounds of Parmesan cheese, in the form of an entire cheese wheel for sale on Amazon, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. Oh, and the Myths and Legends store is back up and running. We have shirts, new products, and new stickers. Check it out at mythpodcast.com slash store or by following the link in the show notes. The creature this time is Sheila, from Arabic folklore. The Sheila is like a demonic djinn, or genie, but its origin story is fairly gross and tragic, like most creatures of the week, actually. It's doomed pretty much from the start, because while one of its parents is a human, the other is a genie who consumes human flesh. And, I mean, think about it. It's not like a magical creature of nearly limitless power has ever had a hard time getting food. If a genie is eating human flesh, it is because a genie 100% wants to be eating human flesh. The hideously ugly Sheila inherits its magical parents' dietary preferences, and not only hunts men to eat them, but it captures them and makes them dance before consuming them, in case you are worried that a creature of the week wasn't sadistic enough. They live in the forests of a very specific island off the coast of China that ancient Arabic geographers marked as the Island of the Sheila. They are hated and hunted by wolves, though which character from folklore isn't, and the wolves will always attack them on sight. If you happen to hear a person calling out, Come to my help, for a wolf devoureth me, or who will liberate me? I have a hundred dinars and he shall receive them. Don't go. I mean, I'm sorry. I like the idea of helping strangers. But if someone is saying devoureth, that's a trap. It's a trap because after you rescue the Sheila from becoming the wolf's dinner, you'll become the Sheila's dinner. But not before a compulsory dance party of one. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. 
There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.